Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, to begin with, my apologies. Um, uh, so I've been trying to move to an uploading schedule of every Friday and Tuesday, but I got very busy Friday, and then I got busy Tuesday, or my apologies, and then I got busy Saturday, and then Sunday, and then uh, here we are. Anyways, today, uh, this is going to get released on Tuesday, so... That's fun. So we're just, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to skip an episode. Shoot. But, anyways, I just want to say thank you for joining me today for yet another ramble. I'm so glad that you are here. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always write in at the email provided in the description. And today, I wanted to talk about something that I've been thinking about for quite some time. And it's kind of like a term that I personally have coined, and I call it the like archetype almost if you will of the grand visionary now i know it sounds like complete and utter nonsense and you know what it possibly is but i don't know i've just been reading up on some people and it's like they just have a vision for what the future should be and what they want it to be you know it's like they don't look at the world the same way we do because I feel like a lot of us just kind of looks at the world and goes with the flow and stuff, you know, or they have ideas or changes that they want to make, but you, or you, you know, kind of like a more small scale in their own personal life. But some people, it's almost, I don't even really think it's something that can be learned or taught. It's almost like some people, they're just born with this itch in them, you know, that if they're not doing what they want to do and if they're not leading people into the brighter tomorrow that they see it's just it's just killing them you know and it's like they are so consumed by how they want to see just the whole world move and how they think and know that where they are taking like humanity as a race is the way to go and how boldly they lead us there is just so fascinating to me and it's like i don't know it's just so interesting to me how these people because it's true it's like they're born with it and it's just like reading up on it and how it consumes them is just super interesting to me i mean it's like nothing quite like i've ever seen personally so anyways i just wanted to kind of touch on a few of these i've selected three here today this could end up being a shorter episode uh it's very possible it could end up being a bit longer who really knows actually um i just kind of wrote down some bullet points and we'll just discuss them uh so the first person we're going to talk about i feel like the latter two that i have uh come up with are a little bit more self-explanatory or a little bit maybe more predictable but he actually kind of came up in my readings i had some prior knowledge on him um but it's really interesting how he came up and I don't know. I just found a lot of the things that he was uh, writing and talking about really interesting. Um, Walter Elias Disney. Now, he's pretty well known, you know, for being like the founder of the Walt Disney Company, which, you know, is like one of the largest media entertainment conglomerates in the entire world and has produced so many well-known characters and owned so many well-known properties that they, you know, literally have their own municipality uh, outside of Orlando in the state of Florida to run Walt Disney World under. I mean, you know, crazy huge company. We all know them. Uh, Most of us, you know, grew up uh, watching and, you know, getting involved with some form of entertainment that he went on to create. But what's really interesting, and, you know, one of the parks at Disney World is called Epcot, but 
Epcot how it is today, you know, I was a bit of an interesting, uh, you know, like, it's odd. It's not quite like a normal theme park if you've been there, because it's got like this whole part that you go around this little mini lake and it has, you know, like little sections in each country, and it's a very technologically focused place, and it's really odd, but that's not just how it was originally supposed to be. In fact, the real story behind Epcot and how it relates to the uh, production of Walt Disney World eventually is so fascinating. I might do a later episode on it. I mean, it's truly incredible how, because you think that, you know, like the development of Walt Disney World kind of drove Epcot, but it was actually the other way around in that a lot of ways that the development of Epcot is what drove Walt Disney World to be created. Uh, because essentially, Epcot was, sub what it was is that it was Walt Disney's idea for a city of tomorrow. In fact, it actually stands as a whole acronym that I really should have written down, but shoot, oh well. But the T in Epcot stands for tomorrow, and it was this grand idea in this vision there's the big word of the day it was his vision for how industry should move forward and it was his idea on a place to experiment and for large corporations and everything you know big technology companies to experiment and play with different you know solutions to modern day pro uh, problems like housing pollution you know traffic all these sorts of things specifically traffic in particular was actually a big driving force and motivation behind the design of epcot because walt disney recounts how you know growing up man was born in 1901 you know so as a teenager cars started becoming more popular and then you know he used them a little bit in france during world war one and stuff you know and then by the time he got back uh, to America after the war and stuff, you know, it just exploded with uh, Henry Ford's Model T coming on the scene. But it's really interesting how he used to see it as like this crazy, you know, machine from the future that could, you know, take people to and from. And he thought it was really interesting how Henry Ford, kind of another visionary, if you will, looked at things and didn't just want to, you know, put them in the hands of the right people, but everybody, which is a theme that will come up later. Uh, it's kind of a common theme with a lot of these visionaries is that they want to give everybody the ability of like a sci-fi movie eventually and in a lot of ways that's kind of what makes them a visionary is how they peer into what they think is the future and want to make it a reality but we'll get back into what i think makes a visionary who and what they are at the end of it but anyways so walt disney you know he wanted to create epcot as his solution to things like traffic and all this stuff and it's quite interesting because walt disney was not you know like an industrial engineer or anything he was not a city planner he had no prior experience of this really but in reading up on it it's interesting how like a lot of city planners and industrial engineers were thoroughly impressed with his design of uh, you know Disneyland in Anaheim California and said that his idea to have it so centralized around you know kind of a radial design that branched out was truly revolutionary and properly ingenious so interestingly it seems like the guy had a natural gift for it so you know and he kind of was really in his later you know years in life he was almost obsessed with his legacy in that he didn't want to be remembered as a guy in fact there was like 
I'm quoting this one really loosely, but he had a quote or something along the lines of, you know, I don't want to be remembered for inventing a mouse. <laughs> you know, he as he grew older and stuff, he didn't want to really be seen as the guy that invented a mouse or, you know, made funny shows for and, you know, stuff for kids to laugh at. He wanted to make something that really impacted and revolutionized the world. And Epcot was his, uh, what he was aiming for. And to, like, put it in a perspective, what he originally designed, he had, like, a radial city kind of built out with, like, a big hotel and, uh, convention center, an office building at the middle of it. I mean, thing was going to be massive. And then branching out, he was going to have, like, suburban homes and stuff, you know. Uh, but in between them, he was going to have, like, this, uh, big kind of ring of, uh, schools and churches and, you know, uh, fields and playgrounds and stuff, you know. And he didn't want there to be, like, any private land ownership uh, or anything. He was just going to own everything, and he uh, was going to have everything, you know, all the houses and everything. He was going to be bankrolling them and putting in, you know, the new prototyping and cutting-edge technology and everything. And he wanted it to kind of be like a little utopia. And his solution around things, you know, like traffic and all these problems that really had come to annoy him in Anaheim and in California was that he was actually going to have like three layers uh and the first two of which were going to be underground the bottom layer was going to be like for supply trucks and stuff you know and the second layer was going to be for just all vehicles like you know regular passenger vehicles and then the top layer was going to be everything else and he only wanted uh, like parking spaces for the most part to be for people who are just visiting and like uh, any actual residents there he was going to charge extreme amounts for parking because he just didn't want to he wanted to discourage the sale of cars essentially because he just didn't like them he thought that they were annoying and he was able to accomplish all of this in like a series of really big roundabouts almost because he didn't want any traffic lights he thought that they were just a drag and were annoying to deal with so it's really interesting reading up on how he wanted this and he wanted it so bad i mean like reading about it like you know uh his uh big you know engineer that he consulted a whole lot you know and logistics uh guy for you know the construction of disneyland and all sorts of stuff and the guy that he actually saw out to go do studies and surveys and find the best area you know for him to build this you know idea of his on said that it just consumed him I mean, he just did nothing but day and night work on it. And it's kind of funny, because for a guy who tried so hard, he really didn't think a whole lot of things out. Like, for example, he never really figured out quite all that well that maybe people wouldn't like. I saw someone write this thing on this, and it's kind of funny. And it's like, you know, uh, today, uh, you could almost make a news uh, headline about it that says, you know, like, Florida man tries to form a autocratic regime dictatorship and you know and swamp because that's kind of what he was wanting to do he was wanting to make you know his own city and everything and uh, let these big companies experiment you know and try and pave a way into tomorrow hence the city of tomorrow but he wanted it all to be done his way he didn't you know like want any like elections he didn't want any form of you know people trying to governing themselves it was his layer of the highway, baby. There is nothing else. He wasn't going to accept anything else. And it's really interesting how that was kind of his mindset on it. And he had done that earlier. And, you know, this uh, big thing about a lot of these grand visionaries is that they really believe in themselves. Maybe more than they sometimes should. Now, to be fair, uh, the reason why he was actually being taken so seriously when 
just about anybody else, you know, that had this idea would have been laughed out of a room is because it's hard to think about it now, considering how many theme parks and amusement parks we have nowadays and about how, you know, we have a whole Oscar section for, you know, animated movies. But the thought of making a feature length animated film that was going to be good and critically, you know, acclaimed and wasn't just, you know, a little thing to uh, play in like, you know, just a little 10 minute short to play at a theater for, you know, kids and just generally people to laugh at was unheard of. The thought of that telling a compelling story, it was ridiculous. Nobody thought it was going to be a thing. And I don't know if I'm 100% correct on this. So don't quote me on this. Um, but I know that Snow White, which was, you know, the first feature-length film and everything that he made, um, I know it did win an Academy Award or an Oscar, and it might have been for Best Picture, actually. It might have been something like that. or might, He might have won an honorary one after he died, but anyways, he was awarded one for uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, where uh, it actually he had an Oscar, you know, that had, like, one of the little uh, big Oscar guys, if you will, and then seven of the little. Anyways, but, so, you know, he did that. Everybody thought it was impossible. Nobody thought it would be successful. Nobody thought it was a plausible reality. And he made it a plausible reality, you know? Then second, nobody thought that Disneyland would actually be a thing. Uh, everybody just thought that it was kind of insane and ridiculous. Yet, here we now know that not only was it not so insane and ridiculous, but it is a formula copied and emulated not just by Disney all over the world, but by, you know, Universal Studios, all of SeaWorld, all of these massive corporations and everything you know all these massive uh entertainment empires are now doing something like disneyland something that he did first and something that people laughed at saying it would be crazy and insane and that nobody would want to go to it because it just seems so weird you know so he kind of has some credit because people are like you know this seems a little bit like out there and crazy but at the same time I mean, this guy's done the crazy and insane before, and it worked out. So, you know, maybe let's just hear him out. And it's just incredible that he was able to do that. And, you know, it's just, it's so interesting how he just wanted this so bad. I mean, it consumed him, like, it, because he was so worried about his legacy, and he wanted this so bad. Like, there was one quote I read. This one I actually wrote down. But it was, uh, he was looking at a plan on it with, you know, uh, his, one of his uh, lead engineers and stuff. And he pointed at a bench, and he said, This is the bench where me and Lily, Lily being his wife, Lily and Disney, will sit and watch all the happy people, and watch all the people being happy in my utopia. I mean, he really believed in what he was doing, and he really wanted it. And, I mean, even the day before he died, when his brother Roy Disney came to visit him on his deathbed in the hospital, Walt was looking at the ceiling and using the ceiling tiles of the false ceiling as a grid, and he was drawing out and telling him about how, yo, he may change this around and he thinks that should go here. I mean, he was just consumed by this. And... It's so interesting to me how it just did, how it just, you know, really got to him. And I think we'll wrap up the Walt Disney section now because I can go on for a while about it. And, you know, I might do a future thing on it. But I just want to read you this quote I found that perfectly encompasses Walt Disney because he's a very... He, he was so afraid of just being remembered, you know, as like this, you know, kind of a uncle he had this uncle walt persona that he wasn't a fan of where people just saw him as you know kind of like your fun uncle that you know told really good stories stuff but he didn't want to quite be remembered as that but his uh his i believe it was his yeah 
what is it? What's up? Nephew. His nephew, um, Roy E. Disney, said something like if you um, ask, you know, 40 people in a room to write down what what Disney is to them, you will get 40 different answers. I mean, it was just so many things. But I read this quote that I want to share with you that I think really encompasses a lot of interesting things about Walt. Is that he was a futurist bartering with nostalgia. He was a conservative driven by progress. And he was a calm-mentored man with a short temper. A man of such contradiction cannot be described in such short words or such few words as I have tried to do. But yet, can what, what can really describe a man who captivated hundreds of millions of people for not just his own age, but the next era to come? And I just think that that was really impressive. I love that wording. So, interesting. Uh, Maybe it's just... So think about that. You ever like go to Disney World or just next time you're watching a movie by Disney, think about how he not only was a guy that liked to tell stories and make animated movies, but was also a little bit out of his mind driven by his idea of a better tomorrow. And yeah, anyways, next guy on the list. Now these two you've probably heard of didn't really seem like a shock, but I think they're definitely worth noting in this category. And the first one being is Steve Jobs. Now... I've told people before, and I'll say it again, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Steve Jobs like uh, as a guy, necessarily. I think that he is incredibly narcissistic and egotistical. Um, I think that he he's just... Let me just put it this way. If me and him had a conversation, I don't know how eye-to-eye we've seen. I've also been told that I'm a lot like him, so that's annoying to me. But anyways, besides the point... But he did a similar thing in that he was so driven by his idea. And uh, a movie that actually portrays this really well, one of my personal favorite names, Steve Jobs. But anyway, uh, it's just that, you know, he was so driven. And, you know, it's kind of funny looking back on it, how much his uh, computer that, you know, debuted in 1984, the Macintosh, the original one, how much it bombed back then and was, you know, a commercial failure Yet, it is by far one of the most revolutionary computers ever made. I mean, I'll get into why in a second. But, you know, just a quick little thing on uh, Steve Jobs is, you know, growing up and everything. He he, he kind of uh, was a bit of a hacker and a hobbyist in some ways. Uh, with, you know, and he actually went on to work for Atari a bit, I believe. Um, don't quote me on that. But I believe he did, actually. And for a short time. But he always... He was really about, because, you know, computers, by the time he kind of came on the scene, I've been around for about 15, 20 years, you know. But it wasn't, like, the most common thing ever. I mean, you know, like, really big companies or, you know, agents or government, you know, entities had them, you know, from, like, mass amounts of calculation and data processing. But they weren't all that frequently or commonly used, you know. But he really believed that if you put the hands of a computer into anyone and that if everyone had access to a computer and its capabilities that it would be revolutionary in a way that he honestly thought the world had never seen and honestly you can make an argument and I certainly do great it's not quite the same thing and I might talk about uh, them later Fairchild Silicon that you know started the whole Silicon Valley and everything but anyways that's besides the point but you know is that when computers became easy and accessible for everybody, 
it kind of changed the world as we know it. I mean, no longer does you have to be wealthy or come from a high family to be educated. I mean, you, you got a computer at your local library and you have access to just about, you know, uh, with internet access, you have access to just about anything you could ever want to know. It's how idiots like me are able to yell into a mic for however many minutes, you know, about whatever they find fascinating. It's because, you know, they're able to just find and research and read. I mean, yeah, there's some odd and maybe not so bright things put on the internet but there's a lot on there that's really interesting and it's kind of put us into an age of information that we have never come close to before i mean it is it's kind of crazy especially you know to think about how even just like a hundred years ago like you really just couldn't go in figure like you know if you were wondering you know like oh geez i want to you know now, how many calories, I don't know, an elephant eats a day? You know, you can, it's kind of crazy, I think, uh, now that we've become so enveloped in it. But it's interesting to think about how, at that point in time, you couldn't just, I don't know, pull out your phone and look it up. No, you would have to go to, like, you know, uh, a library or something, hope that they have it. Or go to, like, some, you know, a, a university, accredited university, hope that they have something written on something there about it, you know. Or track down some sort of expert in the field and everything, you know. Like, it has put us in such a time where anything you could ever want to know is so easily accessible. They has put us in an era of such amazing like overall i feel like education in our society and just like how much people know and compare like i was reading this thing not too long ago talking about how uh like the average uh teenager nowadays could almost be like a scholar the likes of which the world had never seen 200 years ago and that might be a bit of an exaggeration but i mean if you think about it like 200 years ago average high school like american high schooler i mean they at least know some algebra hopefully geometry maybe uh you know they have a pretty good and understanding uh level of physics and science and stuff you know at least maybe one that pays attention so and it's like back in the day that was like you know something that you had to go to school for and study intensely to get to that level of things you know it's just crazy to me how far we've come especially now with the internet we can just know anything and you know he's kind of the guy Steve Jobs is the guy that really put all that into practice and put all of that into motion because he just was so badly wanting everybody to get a computer. But you see, when he was at it, computers weren't like they were nowadays, you know? They were very finicky. They would not just, you know, handle anything you tried to put them through. They were they were just a little bit more special, if you will, you know? Uh, like the original, you know, PC2, Commodore 64, you know, a lot, well, PC2 might have had a GUI, but I don't think they did. Anyways, or at least like the original IBM PC, you know, didn't. And, you know, like there wasn't any such thing as like an OS, you know, you had like a floppy drive that you could put things in and you could, you know, use what was on that. And then the computer could read that and then do stuff, you know, or you could tell the, like, it's just, it's kind of crazy, you know, like if you've ever uh, used command prompt on a Windows computer or just, you know, done like any text-to-speech program, thinking about how that would be the only way you could communicate with a computer, you know, in a program and tell it to do things. And that I mean, that's what he had at the time, you know, but he looked at things and he wanted to make them easy for everybody to use and his solution to this was the macintosh he wanted something you know that was not big that was not ugly he wanted something that you know could kind of sit in a room and you know go with the rest of it and like you know 
um, just be like a nice looking lamp or something almost, you know, something that just kind of blended in, you know, but was like a nice centerpiece, if you will. Um, and he wanted it to be simple and easy. He wanted it to be easiest for a child to use and kind of coming back to the education thing, you know, he, what he always uh, kind of saw or something that, you know, he often said is that he wanted to live in a world where, uh, you know, like you could have a kid at an underprivileged school and have their favorite teacher with them 24 seven, you know, but you can't really do that when all you have is, so he had to do something. I mean, granted, you know, um, Jeff Raskin's kind of, you know, the guy that started the whole Macintosh progress and then, you know, uh, <laughs> Steve might have kicked him off of it and kind of, you know, I mean, it's the whole thing, but nobody really, anyways, besides the point, and, you know, um, Xerox were kind of, you know, the original, uh, guys that had the, uh, GUI system, you know, or graphical user interface where it was like point and click, you know, but he was really the one that brought it to market and made it viable and feasible, you know, and it's kind of, it's crazy, like I said, because if you read up on like the sales number, oh my gosh, the Macintosh bombed upon release. I mean, it just, it's, it's because <laughs> it's funny. They're still kind of, it's a bit controversial that they do it today, but what really kind of did it in a lot of ways is that Steve wanted to have a closed end-to-end -end system. Here we go again with these grand visionaries. It's either their way or the highway, you know? He wanted to have a closed end-to-end -end system where he could control everything that's done with the computer and stuff, you know? Uh, and part of it, uh, some speculate, is that he had kind of a grudge or a chip on his shoulder since Steve Wozniak made the uh, Apple II such, you know, an open platform for people and stuff, you know? Um, might do an episode on him eventually. Incredible guy. Um, such an insane hardware engineer. It's kind of almost incredible. I, it's straight up. It's anyways, besides the point, but so, you know, it's really interesting how he wanted to do all that and everything. And he didn't even stop there. Uh, even though, you know, it was a failure and stuff, you know, he was still focused on his vision and we can see it with, you know, like later, the iPhone and the iPod, you know, he didn't want, he, he, he wanted, you know, something that could do everything, you know, something that could take phone calls. He wanted something that could look on the internet. He wanted something that, you know, could send emails back and forth, listen to music. But here was the real kicker, all right? He wanted it all to be in the palm of your hand. He wanted you to be able to do everything you would do and sit down at your computer to do, you know, but he wanted you to be able to do it simply, easily, and quickly in the palm of your hand and elegantly and simply either because you know by 2007 when the iPhone kind of came around I mean smartphones already existed but for the most part you know they were kind of slow they were clunky they you know had a bit of a confusing uh, GUI or graphical user interface on them they all had like you know those Blackberry style physical keyboards and stuff you know they just weren't they weren't really all that <laughs> if you kind of know what I mean you know and also, too, a lot of their touchscreens, you had to use a stylus. And uh, new, the new in a PDA, you know, which uh, was actually kind of, which was developed by, you know, Apple uh, specifically, you know, kind of like the pet project of then CEO John Scully. Um, it was, you know, a PDA and stuff, but it was kind of ahead of its time in that you had a stylus and you could write stuff, you know, and it would actually turn it into digital text for you, which is actually a really neat idea. And it's interesting how they were doing that back in the, like, you know, 90s and stuff. So it's just fascinating to me. And, you know, that was a complete failure. But um, a part of the reason why Jobs said he never would have done that, and, you know, he was quoted later, which kind of makes it funny that the Apple Pencil was ever developed, but is that he never really liked the idea of a stylus because if you're using a stylus, 
you're ignoring the five stylus that God gave you on your hands and stuff, you know, and it's kind of, it's stuff like that, that, you know, just these like little bits and pieces that you just go, huh, that is an interesting point that kind of makes these grand visionaries, I think, so remarkable to a lot of people is that they just look at things and they just, you know, they don't quite see things like we do, you know. And it's really interesting. And that was, you know, one thing. And then he often, which is kind of funny, because I would probably say that of all that he did, the Macintosh is probably, you know, the most influential and the greatest thing he ever did or accomplished for, you know, humanity overall. Um, but honestly, he always said that the iPad, he thinks, was the greatest thing he ever did. Or he was at least said it once, which I think is really interesting, because when I think of... Things that are just, you know, kind of like a novelty, but, you know, eh, I don't know so much. Or, you know, you could even say, like, the iPhone, maybe, but the iPad. But he thought it was such a perfect marriage between a full desktop computer and, like, uh, you know, a small, like, phone or something that you could hold in your hand that it was the greatest thing he would ever accomplish, you know, because the guy who, you know, wanted to have a computer simply and easy for everybody to use, having one, you know, that was ultra-thin easy to use could be carried in a backpack and stuff you know and was you know truly elegant and beautiful looking i mean shoot how can you get any better than that for a computer for everybody to use but i still so i can kind of see his rationale behind it but i don't really agree with that and um i don't know it's just really interesting how he was just so driven by it i mean he this this vision of his you know it was like he just it kind of made him almost like a tyrant and you know like i read one thing about um and they were, I can't remember if it was like the original uh, big boy iPod, you know, or if it was like the iPod, the first iPod touch. It might have been the touch. I think it was what it was. But then um, when they fought, brought him like the first, you know, when engineering first brought him the prototype, you know, he's like, is this as small as you can get it and stuff? You know, and they go, oh, yeah, mate. Like, that's as small as we're going to be able to get it. All right. That thing is airtight. And he goes, okay. And he, from what I read, now, granted, this is an adult source. You know, so this is true. But he just chucked the thing. They're, they're you know, whole sample. They're big pitching him. He chucks it in his fish tank and he watches some uh, air bubbles flop out of it. And he goes, huh must not be that airtight then and they were actually able to get it smaller you know but it's like stuff like that that makes you go man what a jerk but also shoot he's kind of got a point and it's interesting that he thought of things you know that way and i just find him in particular really interesting because if you read a lot of stuff on him specifically he was so driven and consumed by things i mean i mean we saw he was literally working on this stuff until he died and you know he, there was a really interesting quote from him in particular in relation to Fairchild Silicon, who, long story short, invented, you know, or were able to come up with the process of, you know, making uh, silicon transistors, which, you know, like everything that, you know, calculates ones and zeros or has some sort of computing function uses nowadays. You know, that whole process was pioneered by Fairchild Silicon. And Steve Jobs once said that, Silicon Valley is kind of like a relay race of the progress of humanity and that they started the uh, race and then um, upon the invention of the Apple II, he thinks that he grabbed the baton and started running. I mean, he really saw himself kind of in that role of a grand visionary, if you will. And it's just, I don't know, that in particular, I've always really found that interesting. And by the way, I might do a thing on that later because I think that, you know, the uh, eight traders signing a single dollar bill forming Silicon Valley is truly one of the most significant um, things to have ever happened. Like, 
I would probably say that in terms of historical significance, it is easily one of the top five most significant things that have ever happened. I mean, I personally believe that the wheel and the transistor, or that the transistor is the next greatest invention and the most revolutionary discovery man has made since inventing the wheel or discovering fire. Like, I know that's probably a bit of a hot take, but like, I cannot think of anything else that has given us the leap and how we just live our life anyways besides the point but it's interesting how he was very aware of that you know how he was kind of leading things anyways the next grand visionary if you will a guy that's currently doing it so i guess we'll see you know uh with his legacy whether or not he kind of does fall into this role or not but elon musk elon reeve musk or as i saw a meme once that made me laugh call him elongated muskrat um, yeah, I think that he deserves to be in this conversation. I mean, when you look at this, I let me read a quote that um, I saw him say that I thought was really interesting, okay? Because um, he kind of gave this um, interview on, you know, what he uh, thinks that the future will look like and, you know, what his companies are working for. And then he kind of summarized it all saying, in this future, energy will be cheap, abundant, and sustainable. People will work in harmony with intelligent machines and even merge with them and humans will become an interplanetary species i mean shoot if that is not someone who knows what they want their vision of the future to look like i don't know what is but he's really inter i mean um when it comes to the interplanetary stuff like <laughs> i'll be honest uh i don't know so much about that one bud but like let's look at his two look just look like let's just look at two of his like most notable things that come to mind like you know um, for example, Tesla, like nobody really thought an electric car would be all that plausible, you know, just because of the range limitations and stuff, you know, nobody certainly thought that they'd be all that competent of a performance car, but yet the Tesla model plaid right now is the world's fastest production car. If you squint at it the right way, um, like it's so fast that it's kind of crazy, you know, so it's blown that they're working on, you know, a long range semi trucks and stuff, you know, so it's blown that like he looked at the transportation business, you know, and he said, that's cool, but I can do it better, you know, and it's like, let's look at this one, I think is actually by far one of his most noteworthy accomplishments to date, and that's his development of the Starlink Internet service provider. Now, I'm a little bit biased. In case you don't know, I live out in the boonies and I am actually like one of the Starlink uh, beta testers. And let me tell you, uh, going from like three megabytes a second down to 180, that was pretty cool. And it's just, it's so crazy how like simple and easy it is to, you know, set up and everything. But it's like that right there. See, once again, kind of, you know, not just putting things in the right hands, but in everybody's hands. Like, instead of just having high-speed internet be to, you know, people in, like, more centralized or urban locations and stuff, you know, just going, that. well, that's cool, but what if everybody have that? It's just crazy. And, you know, like, the engineering that goes behind a lot of this stuff, you know, like, all those, like, Starlink satellites, which, fun fact, actually, if you, like, live in an uh, area where they are, um, sometimes they, like, turn on lights and, you know, for alignment purposes, and you can actually look up into the sky and see them. It's kind of cool. But, anyways, besides the point, I saw one from a plane. But, anyways, so, and, you know, it's just kind of cool how he looked at that and went, well, you know, what if we just put a bunch of low-orbit satellites in the sky and stuff, you know? And then, like, when people started asking questions about, you know, like, here's something. It's just a cool tidbit about them that I find really cool about all those little satellites is that, 
um, when they like, you know, burn out or become uh, too old, they're not just going to become, you know, like clutter and stuff. Is that they're actually made the exact like weight and size that they need to be. That way they can use their last little bit of charge to propel themselves towards uh, Earth. And, well, theoretically at least, they'll actually just burn up on re-entry. That way they don't clutter the sky with anything and stuff, you know. And they're programmable, so that way they can move out of the way of, like, telescopes and stuff, you know, for uh, observation purposes. I mean, it's just really cool. And I find it interesting, you know, how he not only wants to do that, he wants to make, like, it is one thing for an individual to want to make uh, cheap and easy internet for everybody. But um, for them to literally want to make space travel, <laughs> you know, cheap and easy, maybe not cheap, but, you know, something accessible to just about everybody is insane. And the fact that he has said himself that he thinks he's just getting started and stuff, you know, I think it's really going to be interesting to see uh, what he comes up with. And he's someone that I think is worth keeping their eyes on because he's kind of going against like the regular establishment and he just goes, you know, well, that's one way to do things, but I'm going to try doing them my way. And, um, well, the past few times he's tried that, hasn't had the worst results. So, I think it's worth checking that out. You know, keeping an eye on it. But, this all comes back to the question, what is a grand visionary and what makes them who they are? And, that's a question that I don't really have a good answer for, but I'll give my thoughts on it. I think a grand visionary is someone who looks around them and isn't satisfied. Someone who has that hunger to do more you know and it's not like they want to do more it's not like they feel like you know or for selfish reasons it's that they feel like they are called that it is their god-given right and their god-given fate that this is what they need to do they are someone who is so driven and so consumed by what they see is something that's not just good for people not something that people want but that it's something that the world actively needs and that they won't stop working until it's something that you know can be done and accomplished i think is truly kind of almost inspirational i mean like all these people they had a lot of their you know own personal problems steve jobs i mean he can just read up on you know his daughter lisa and about how he you know just denied being her dad and then you know all this other stuff you know Walt Disney, he had like a big temperamental problem and stuff, you know, was a bit of a workplace tyrant. Right? Elon Musk, I mean, <laughs> we all know him. You know, like these aren't perfect people, but I'm just really almost infatuated with their drive to just do different, you know. Uh, <laughs> think different, think differently, you know. Anyways, but, you know, just... How they feel like they need to do this and that they're called to do this. And they will not stop until they do it. I just find it really interesting. And I don't know. It almost makes you wonder about like your own purpose in a way. And I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a bit too introspective. But it's almost like I believe that it's something that you're born with. Like me personally. I mean, no, I don't. Like I can't. I don't really look around the world and go, I need this to happen or something, you know. Like, for the most part, I kind of just want to be left alone and do my own thing. And preferably with a lot of money. But I haven't figured out that part of the equation yet. But, you know, and it's like, I don't know. I just am so interested by these people and what makes them tick. And I just wanted to share with you a few examples that I found really interesting. And I hope you found it interesting as well. Anyways, that'll be all for today's episode. 
Uh, I really hope that you personally enjoyed it. I know that I certainly enjoyed reading up on this and sharing it with you. Um, please, once again, if you have any you know questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to write in to me. And until then, I will really try to get one out this Friday. But thank you for joining me this evening. Or, well, for me, it's the evening. I don't know when you'll be listening to this, but thank you for doing that. And you know what? I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.